1: A quick content warning, this podcast features adult language and delves into difficult themes that include sexual assault. Let's take a moment to travel back to the 90s. To the early days and open spaces of the so-called World Wide Web, which we now mostly refer to as the Internet. There, we can meet movie geeks from around the world. Movie geeks who found a community.
2: All of a sudden, I found, I found the people who were as, like, crazy into movies as I was. And that kicked down a door.
1: Movie geeks who got the chance to explore their passions.
3: Ended up doing a fan site for Star Trek First Contact in 96 on GeoCities. Uh, and that went for a few months, and then the film came out. And I was like, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I want to keep it going. So I changed it to every film.
1: And movie geeks who, seeing the potential of the internet, realized those passions could possibly lead them to fortune and glory. I just remember that the biggest feeling I had was the internet's going to change things up in a big way. But none of these movie geeks would make a bigger splash than a 500-pound, semi-paralyzed man who was forced to lay in bed all day in the spare bedroom of his father's house.
4: And that's where I met Harry, was arguing in news groups. And uh, it was hate at first sight.
1: On this episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we have stories about the pioneers from the Wild West days of the World Wide Web, and how one of them managed to become the leader of the pack by taking on Hollywood and becoming the man who killed Batman and Robin. Plus the raising of the Titanic, and how filmmaker Quentin Tarantino transformed a huge geek from the internet into something, well, cool. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 2, There Will Be Nerds.
5: Here, you know where that place is
6: if this is california and down here's texas it must be like uh...
1: you just heard a scene from the 1984 john carpenter's sci-fi film starman in the film jeff bridges stars as an alien from outer space who befriends and ultimately falls in love with an earth woman played by karen allen the film would go on to earn bridges an academy award nomination for best actor this movie is both the first and only time that a john carpenter film would receive this honor Aside from this bit of trivia however, Starman is arguably one of the most influential movies in the history of Ain't It Cool News, an internet movie news website that was launched in 1996. For you see, Starman is the film that forever activated a then young movie fan growing up in Tennessee by the name of Drew McQueenie to become a screenwriter and by proxy to that a movie critic and film journalist who wrote under the pseudonym Moriarty. Here's Jeff Snyder, who worked at Ain't It Cool News before moving on to write for other publications, including Variety. He would also later work with Drew as one of his editors. I think Drew is, if not not the best critic in America, I think he's
3: like a top three critic in America.
1: Like Drew, I grew up in the South and can't imagine that being a kid in Tennessee with a last name like McQueenie was an easy thing to do. Adding to the kid Drew McQueenie's challenges is the fact that his dad was a civil engineer, which meant Drew's family had to move around a lot. From New York to Florida, from Florida to Texas, from Texas to Tennessee, and then from Tennessee back to Florida again. Moving so much had to make it difficult to make and keep childhood friends. But for Drew, his one source of consistency was the fact that his parents owned a VHS player. No matter where I moved, I always had movies. And I always had the same movies wherever I went, and that helped Growing up in the 70s and 80s, Drew would slip deep into movie obsession, sucking up as much knowledge and information as a child could during those pre-internet days of cinema culture. This involved fan magazines, books, and then a major opportunity. His mom had a friend who worked as a casting agent for extras on the movies that were being filmed in the tennessee and georgia area where drew lived as a teenager two of these southeast film productions included the 1978 comedy harper valley pta and the 1981 romp the night the lights went down in georgia both of which were based on the lyrics of popular country music songs of the same name because you know that's what film producers used to do before everything was a comic book movie i guess fortunately for drew this was not another film based on yet another popular country music song. And as an added bonus, this movie also had a named director. Companies coming. John Carpenter's Starman.
4: It changed my life. It was the day that everything changed. I met John Carpenter. The movie was Starman. And they were unbelievably kind to me, starting with the unit publicist who drove us to the location um, as soon as we got in his car and he was asking me, so wait, who are you? Like, he couldn't figure out why he was doing this favor. That was the weird thing to him. And I just started talking about movies. And I started talking about how, well, I know this was supposed to be Brian De Palma directing, but then Columbia had it and Universal switched it for.
1: The audio cut out here for just a moment, which is unfortunate because this is my favorite part of Drew McWeeny's story a kid who had just been deposited onto the set of a major studio motion picture, Drew immediately fell into his role of a human font of movie news, much like a newly feathered baby bird who starts to fly or a young Paul Bunyan touching his very first ax. Drew might not have realized this at the time, but this was a demonstration of his instinct, his destiny. Afterward, the unit publicist brings him to meet John Carpenter. But
4: uh, by the time we got to the set, he was like, John, I don't know what this is. I don't know how he knows so much. He is from outer space. Enjoy him. And for the rest of the day, Carpenter had me right by the camera and explained things to me and talked to me and had no reason to do it. It was just this incredibly kind moment where they recognized this film nerd who was desperate for contact with filmmaking. And they gave me a copy of the script. And uh, I talked to the actors. And I left there really believing it was accessible, and more, more importantly, my parents left there thinking it was accessible, that it was a job human beings did.
1: After getting the chance to pal around with legendary director John Carpenter on the set of Starman, who could blame Drew for wanting to be a filmmaker when he grew up? But before Drew had the chance to write movies, he took a detour, as most of us did in the 90s, down into the cul-de-sac of the human spirit known as the Internet. We'll return to Drew's story in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to go on another detour. We're going to jump into the future from this moment in Drew's life to March of 1999. 1999 was the year when the dot-com bubble was nearing its bursting point. Investors and venture capitalists were cranking tens of billions of dollars into any company that could put a dot-com, dot-net, or dot anything else behind its name. In the following year, which was the peak of this boom-bust cycle, the amount of investments would nearly triple. For webmaster Patrick Saryal, The opulence and excess of this time in his industry was never more apparent than when he attended the third annual Webby Awards hosted at the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco, California.
7: Everything in San Francisco was dot com. Everything. The money was just dripping out of everybody was trying to get on the ground floor for an Internet company.
1: Nuts. You might never have heard of Soriel before. But he is the creator of what has been dubbed the very first movie news website, Corona's Coming Attractions, which he launched in 1995. I, I originally started with these 12
7: movies and I took all the information that i had been reading about in newspapers. And, you know, you, you see like 30 seconds on Entertainment Tonight or or whatever the case is. Or you remember like a, room, a rumor that was like, you know, a couple of years ago. And so I started compiling it on
1: these pages. And I remember just launching that. Sorial stopped updating Corona's Coming Attractions in 2017, and because the history of the internet is written on dry erase boards, Soriel's contributions to internet movie geek culture remain largely unknown, even to the most ardent fans of movie websites and blogs. That said, when Soriel first launched Corona's Coming Attractions, he both informed and inspired movie lovers all over the world, hitting as far out as Australia, which was the home of an enterprising teenage boy named Garth Franklin.
3: I was writing up these guides to movies coming out for my friends, my family's friends, and so forth. And they, were, they ended up being these 80-page documents coming out every year for about two or three years. And they were like these massive things that I would print out, and I'm like, oh. And then in 95, I um, discovered Corona Coming Attractions.
1: Inspired by the work Patrick Soriel did with Corona's Coming Attractions, Garth built his first website during his first year of college.
3: Ended up doing a fan site for Star Trek First Contact in 96 on Geocities, Uh, and that went for a few months and then the film came out and I was like, I'm I'm really enjoying this, I wanna keep it going. So I changed it to every film and that started in January 97. The
1: website that Garth Franklin launched would
3: be Dark Horizons.
1: Both Dark Horizons and Corona's Coming Attractions were widely seen as two of the best websites for movie news from the late 90s to early 2000s, which is why they were among the handful of nominees at the third annual Webby Awards. In the category for best website for a movie or film. Interestingly enough, the host of the Webby Awards that year was the future king of podcasts himself, Mark Marin. I'm here to host the Webby Awards, the 1999 Webby Awards. I got the jokes, hilarious.
8: I got some energy,
1: got a little nerves. Lock the gate, indeed. Presented by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, the Webby Awards has always been unique from other awards shows in that, like the internet itself, the culture and format of this show are constantly in flux. Categories are always being added and then dropped to meet the ever-changing landscape of the internet. And the judges ranged from tech industry insiders to celebrities that included David Bowie and X-Files star Gillian Anderson. But the one constant that has always remained throughout the Webby Awards 24-year history is their stipulation that acceptance speeches can be no longer than five words. This five-word limit became a challenge when former Webby Awards judge and legendary music superstar David Bowie won a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2007. So,
3: only get five words. That was five.
1: (laughs) But for Patrick Sorial, the son of a truck driver and stay-at-home mom, The detail about the 1999 Webby Awards that he will always remember as the greatest manifestation of the dot-com bubble was the after party that the city of San Francisco hosted at City Hall. And it was an open fucking bar. So there was like,
7: yeah, there was like a thousand people just drinking and getting hammered. Like it was, that was where money was being spent on anything to do with the Internet, anything at all. So it was nuts. Um. I really I I do wish that part of me had won that award because they're a cool looking award. I love I love the little, you know, spring version of them, Um, but IMDb was winning because everyone knows IMDb. So I figured, yeah,
1: they're going to win. Patrick was right. The British based movie index known as the Internet Movie Database or IMDb.com did take the award that evening, just as it had done over the two years prior. But there was one oddly named movie-themed website from Austin, Texas that was not nominated. The site actually predates Dark Horizons by one year, but was also inspired in many ways by Corona's coming attractions. And yet both the recognition and infamy this site would create would ultimately far exceed that of both of its contemporaries. That website? Ain't it cool news which was founded by Harry J. Knowles in 1996. The last time we were with Harry Knowles during the mid-90s, he had fallen into a hole. Much like the character Daniel Plainview at the beginning of Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 masterpiece, There Will Be Blood. His mother died as the result of a tragic fire, and shortly thereafter, Knowles was nearly crippled when a dolly truck full of movie memorabilia ran over his back and legs at a fan convention. Partially numb from the waist down and unable to walk without crutches, Harry would spend the next six months mostly laying in bed in the spare room of his father's house. His body broken, Harry's mind spiraled into darkness. Harry describes this challenging time from his life in his book, Ain't It Cool? For reasons that I'm not
5: entirely
1: clear on, I sank into a real sort
5: of screwy depression around this time. And I started to put on a monstrous amount of weight. I'd always been stocky, but this was something else entirely Before I was done, I would weigh in at over 500 pounds. Now, everybody who sees me for the first time, no matter what they know of me beforehand, they see a fat person. It's automatic, you know? My God, he's
1: huge. He's not going to live past 35. Looking for a place where he could escape the immediate judgment from strangers based on his physical appearances, Harry Knowles ventured into the world of computers. Using part of the insurance money he had received from his mother's death, Harry Knowles purchased a brand new computer and scanner. With this thin top-of-the-line machine that held exactly half a gigabyte of memory and an unlimited internet account that he shared with his childhood friend, Roland De Noy, Harry began his exploration into the World Wide Web. His initial foray into the internet was not to find movie news, but to look up potential remedies for his back. But in his second month of surfing the internet, Harry Knowles discovered the old internet phenomenon of newsgroups. Online bulletin and message boards that could best be described to people who never experienced the old internet before as a prototype for Reddit. To help describe newsgroups, here's former Ain't it Cool News writer Jeremy Smith, a.k.a. Mr. Beeks. It was all text.
2: So I went and I was kind of like curious about this and then realized, oh, there were all these newsgroups where people were talking about movies, like records movies. Uh, and there was like rec arts, cult movies, there was rec arts. It was like just this collection, but it was this idea that I could just log onto the computer and have discussions, or more importantly, arguments, with uh, other
1: film geeks all over the world. This online gathering of mostly white, mostly male geeks from around the world was rollicking, combative, and much of it was definitely toxic. At this time in internet history... Usenet was full of people who traded in movie opinions and rumors, as well as internet pissing contests, over who had the most knowledge or best opinions about film. But according to former Anit Cool News writer C. Robert Cargill, Harry wanted to take things to the next level by breaking original movie news stories, or scoops.
0: No one took the internet seriously for anything real. The the Internet was an echo of the real world. It was not a place where content was created that would then go out into the real world. And it wasn't until um, Drudge Report published the, the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal. That was the very first time news broke on the Internet
1: created by Matt Drudge in 1995. The Drudge Report was a populist and admittedly conservative leaning website that first began as an email newsletter that Drudge launched on a Usenet forum before shifting into his own website. In 1996, Drudge captured national attention by scooping traditional mainstream news outlets when he was the first to reveal that Jack Kemp would be Bob Dole's running mate in Dole's failed campaign for the U.S. presidency. But as Cargill mentioned, it would be Dole's rival in that election. Democrat and two-time presidential electee Bill Clinton, who would provide the basis for Drudge's greatest scoop of all time. Matt Drudge's website was the first to report on the scandal wherein President Clinton engaged in various sexual acts with White House intern Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office. And so immediately afterwards, all of a sudden there was this impression that,
0: oh, wait, real news and real media can come from the Internet. Like, this isn't people taking and posting newspaper articles online. These are people writing stuff that then gets picked up by newspapers.
1: One last note, Matt Drudge had two former reporters who went on to be highly influential in their own right. The first and most influential was Andrew Breitbart, who worked as Drudge's assistant before he went on to found the alt-right news site Breitbart, which was highly instrumental in getting former President Donald Trump elected in 2016. The other highly influential former employee of the Drudge Report was... Oddly enough, Harry Knowles. True story, Harry Knowles had a brief stint writing weekly box office analysis for Matt Drudge before he started Ain't It Cool News. During his days on Usenet, Harry Knowles quickly made a reputation for himself by doing three things that would all become hallmarks of his work on Ain't It Cool News. First up, while most people on Usenet posted under pseudonyms and aliases, much like people do on Reddit today, Harry always just posted under his own name, Harry Knowles. This is a tactic he would carry over to his own website, Ain't It Cool News, where everyone but Harry had names, thus making Harry Knowles not only the face and the brand of his site, but of internet movie geek culture in general. Next, Harry would write original news stories, which were these Frankenstein's monster creations that Harry cobbled using trade publications, foreign newspapers, and pure internet conjecture. And lastly, According to former Ain't it Cool News writer Jeremy Smith, much of Harry Knoll's time on Usenet was spent making enemies. Because he would cross-post.
2: He would just, he would spam and be like, oh yeah, I just, like, I've got a new review of, uh, like, White Man's Burden, you know, that was like John Travolta's newest. And he would put it in every single freaking news group. And, and,
1: and that would just infuriate, like, the old school guys. Ironically, While neither of them knew this at the time, one of the enemies that Harry made on Usenet would eventually become what many people say is his greatest collaborator, Drew McQueenie. I remember I went to rec arts, movies, cult movies, sci-fi, was
4: one of the first forums I went to, and I saw that people were discussing, is Deckard a replicant in Blade Runner? And I went, my people, I found my people, nerds, and uh, waded in and started arguing. And that's where I met Harry was arguing in news groups. And uh, it was hate at first sight. I thought he had horrible taste. He and I would argue about scripts that were in development. And I remember our, our most heated argument, and the one where it was like, I'm done with this guy, I can't, I can't talk to him anymore. I had the scripts for both, and he did as well, for both Independence Day and Mars Attacks. And I said, yeah, Independence Day reads like it will make money. It's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever read. It's so stupid. Whereas Mars Attacks is also stupid, but hilarious. I will at least give them credit. Any movie that ends with slim Whitman music making aliens' heads explode, okay, I'm, I'm down. I think the other one's trash. And Harry's contention was that it was going to be the one that made all the money, which I didn't disagree with. I just didn't understand why anyone would like it. Um, and I just, I was done. I was like, I can't, I, you have terror, I can't.
1: And while this disagreement over the years dueling alien invasion movies led Drew to think that he was done with Harry Knowles for good, it turns out that fate would have different plans. Who is
8: she?
7: What is she? I don't know whether to open fire or fall in love.
3: (laughs) You poor guys, always confusing your pistols with your brides.
1: You're listening to a scene from Tim Burton's 1992 film Batman Returns, which features Michelle Pfeiffer in the movie's best performance as Selina Kyle, aka the Catwoman. We'll be talking more about this film's sequels in just a moment, but right now, I want to focus on a virtual person who called herself Selina Kyle. I don't know Selina Kyle's actual name. However, Selena was allegedly this online moniker for a woman Harry Knowles says he met in a chat room in the mid- 90s. What makes this so-called Selena Kyle special? According to Harry, the reason is that she was cited as Harry’s inspiration for launching his website, Ain’t It Cool News. Harry claims Selena Kyle was a married woman, who was unhappy in her home life and began communicating nightly with Harry during eight-hour email and chat sessions.
5: Soon enough, We were exchanging photos. She was gorgeous and she wanted to meet me. But I began to panic. No way would she accept someone this large. So I went on a crash diet. I started spending 18 hours a day typing online.
1: Despite the flirtations and endless chat room sessions, Harry and Selena remain nothing beyond online friends. However, the reason this mystery woman stands out in the story of Harry Knowles is that she motivated him to try and accomplish something with his life. Just as citizens of social media, YouTube, and Twitch would learn two decades later, this woman helped Harry realize that he could cultivate a larger-than-life personality on the internet. That way, even if he was known by most people in real life as a random nobody, or worse, a fat person who could be mocked and ridiculed because of his appearances, through his writing online, Harry Knowles could reinvent himself. Following the footsteps of his former boss and mentor, Matt Drudge, if Harry Knowles could find a way to build his own website, the aspiring webmaster could use his writing on film to become what he referred to as the Internet's second celebrity. Harry later adds, That's when I decided I needed my own forum,
5: a soapbox, something to house my diminishing girth but ever-expanding ambition. I needed my own website, because on the net, I wasn't a fat kid anymore. I wasn't a loser, and I wasn't a cripple.
1: I was just Harry Knowles. The
3: real game
1: begins. The tragedy of losing his mom, along with Harry's near-paralyzing injury, followed by self-actualization and a new sense of identity, resemble the key ingredients of most comic book origin stories. Harry started work on a site which he christened ain't-it-cool-news.com, a wildly cumbersome name and web address, that was inspired by an improvised throwaway line that John Travolta says to Christian Slater in the 1996 thriller Broken Arrow. You're out of your mind. Ain't it cool? Harry readily admits himself that the look and aesthetic of the site was crude, something that appears as if it was built in the spare room of someone's house, because, well, it was. Jeremy Smith agrees with this assessment. The site, its aesthetic offended my sensibilities. Uh, the,
2: The quality of the writing... Harry was, did not communicate well. <laughs> he was not a good writer. and I, uh, But even then, it was like it, it, a lot of the stuff he
1: wrote or a lot of the stuff he posted turned out to be true. When Harry Knowles first launched 8 Cool News in 1996, the site was a stunning example of how cluttered and poorly designed most websites used to be at that time. But the site's frequently rambling, occasionally endearing lack of focus was never more present than it was in the section that Harry allocated for his film reviews. If you've never read any of Harry's film reviews before, I will let legendary film critic Roger Ebert describe it in the way he did during an interview in the 2009 documentary For the Love of Movies, The Story of American Film Criticism.
2: He's more of a clearinghouse than a critic. More of a, we had trouble finding a parking space, and uh, then I ate three chili dogs, and my dad saved a seat for me, and I saw this girl, and then after a while the movie started, and so forth, Uh, which is a valid approach
1: in the history of the old guard assessing the new guard, from print journalism to internet journalism, this has to be one of the nicest, most generous statements ever made. Even Harry's former colleagues at Annette Cool News, such as Jeremy Smith, a.k.a. Mr. Beaks, would not be so kind.
2: So I read it and I was like, this guy's borderline illiterate. He, w- he was just writing off the top of his head. Half the time it was like, these aren't even fully formed thoughts. These aren't sentences.
1: It just, it it drove me nuts. To gain better insight into Harry's approach to film criticism at this time of the site's launch, let's try to enjoy one of the reviews. Specifically, Harry's review of Luc Besson's 1996 sci-fi adventure, The Fifth Element. As he frequently did at the time, Harry starts this review with a personal story. While going to purchase movie tickets for The Fifth Element which was something Harry had to do at the time because he was not a credentialed member of the press, Harry ran into a woman he describes as being an old girlfriend.
5: I round the corner to enter the theater and I see that a very cool friend is waiting for me. And so is the ultimate evil. My ex is there with vampire teeth implants, spanking her little kid who is screaming. My brain began hemorrhaging at this point. Serious thoughts of abandoning the fifth element, began to cross my mind.
1: This bizarre and rambling narrative takes up nearly the first 900 words of a 1700 word review of the film. To Harry's credit, as he continued to write reviews, they focused more on the movies and less on himself, for the most part. Fortunately, before that happened, he was able to recruit two aspiring screenwriters from Los Angeles to be critics on his site. One of them was Moriarty, whose real name was Drew McWeeny, And I didn't have contact with him for about another year.
4: and during that time, mostly annoyed by him. And I would every now and then send him an email and correct something that he ran on the site. He'd run a piece of news and I'd send him something and go, nope, wrong. And I correct him. And that was our early dynamic. And he finally got, he was very smart. He finally kind of coaxed me by saying, well, if you know this, then why don't you say that? And then eventually I just sent him something.
1: Drew adds he was given the name Moriarty to play off their adversarial relationship. Well, he named me because I had such an antagonistic relationship with him.
4: Obviously, in Harry's head, he's Sherlock Holmes. He's the hero of the story. And I was his great nemesis, who constantly was a thorn in his side. And I think I really annoyed the shit
1: out of him when we started dealing with each other. As for the other reviewer that Harry recruited for the site, he was the infamous Joe Hallenbeck, whose real name is, well, he asked me not to tell you, so I won't. Who is Joe Hallenbeck? It's one of those core mysteries from the early days of Ain't it Cool News. Some had suspected that it was Quentin Tarantino, even though the Pulp Fiction director was notorious for not using a computer. Others believe Joe Hallenbeck was a codename for Roger Ebert, who, according to delirious internet legend, was using this codename on Anicool Cool News to share his true, unfiltered thoughts about movies, as if this was something Roger Ebert had time to do on top of his weekly responsibilities as a newspaper and TV film critic. The truth is, Joe Hollenbeck was a renegade. At times, he was also a literal outlaw. He was also the writer who helped launch the controversy that shifted Ain't It Cool News closer to the mainstream of cinema culture. After he was recruited by Harry to write for Ain't It Cool News, Joe Hollenbeck was quickly recognized as the most venomous of Harry's critics, torching films to the ground with bile and vitriol when they failed to meet his expectations. Even during instances where he had not even seen the movie, which was certainly the case with Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor.
8: I hadn't read the script. I hadn't seen the movie. I just saw the trailer and I'm like, here's my review for the movie and I haven't even seen it. And it was about 75, 80% accurate as to what happened in the goddamn movie. <laughs> that's how, that's how utterly predictable it was.
1: So you, that was your review. You like you wrote a review of a movie you hadn't seen. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Or read the script.
8: I this based on the trailer, that's all it was. It's just based on, you know, the trailer for the film. I'm like, OK, here's my review of the movie. And it was pretty accurate. I remember that.
1: <laughs> and because Venom and Bile were currency on the Internet, a fact that's still true today, Joe Hollenbeck immediately enjoyed a certain level of popularity among the earliest readers at Ain't It Cool News as their numbers started to grow both among movie geeks and filmmakers who worked in the industry. Joe Hollenbeck remembers a lunch that he and Harry had with a pretty famous director who was a fan of the website. And without knowing who Joe Hollenbeck was in real life, praised the review that Joe wrote for the Warren Beatty political satire, Bullworth. And uh, he, was,
8: he was talking about how uh, it was one of the funniest things he's ever read. And it was, it was a countdown. It was just, you know, it was big a countdown. It was 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then in big letters underneath it, it just said, fucking sucked. And that was my review. (laughs) And, you know, he thought it was one of the funniest things. And for him to think it was funny, because this guy, you know, is pretty awesome, was amazing. And, uh, you know, we were all laughing about it. And then that's that's when Harry was just like, you know, he's sitting right next to you. And the guy was like,
1: oh my God, are you kidding me? However, the biggest draw for most internet movie news websites in the late 90s and early 2000s were the breaking stories. Scoops. Readers wanted the big reveals that focused on which actor or director might be working on a specific film project before studios would make their official announcements in trade magazines like The Hollywood Reporter or Variety. As for where these scoops came from, the sources vary. For instance, when Patrick Sariel first started Corona's Coming Attractions, many of his early sources were the filmmakers who possessed the technological savvy to be on internet message boards like Usenet. Other sources who would confide the inside dirt with websites like Corona's Coming Attractions and Ain't It Cool News included a lot of writers, mainly because they worked on computers and would spread the latest hot goss, or gossip when they got tired of writing. Patrick Sariel adds that the other people who shared insider information included real power players. There were people involved with like new line
7: uh michael de luca who was the president of production um and who was now a producer on on several films he was a he was a very cool guy and you know we we bounced stuff off of him there was um there was a president for warner brothers that i don't want to name i mean john favreau was one of the guys you know i like I, he was online early and he seemed like a really he was he seemed like a good Guy, good egg.
1: John Favreau plays a major role in internet movie geek culture, and more specifically Ain't It Cool News, from hanging out and chatting with Patrick Sariel about movies online, to jamming in real life with the team of Ain't It Cool News during screening events at the original Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. Eric Vespi, who wrote for Ain't It Cool News for decades under the pseudonym Quint, remembers an encounter he had with Favreau when Favreau and his co-star Vince Vaughn hosted a premiere screening of Favreau's directorial debut feature, made afterwards like he was just kind of holding
9: court Favreau was standing around and i went up to say how much i liked the movie and and uh you know it, this wasn't good for being a spy but i was very proud of of being a part of the site and so i had a t-shirt that had my avatar on it had the, the quint avatar on it and i went up to say hi and i shook his hand and he looked at my shirt and he says is that you and i
1: said yeah and he goes man i love your your writing but not everyone from Hollywood who fed scoops to Ain't it Cool News, Corona's Coming Attractions, or other internet movie news sites were as high-profile as studio heads or actor-directors like John Favreau. Drew McQueen, he says, he would often get info from other informants that included receptionists who worked for Hollywood agents, file clerks, personal assistants, and accountants. In other words, people who were basically invisible to the power players and insiders of Hollywood.
4: 99% of my sources were never on anyone's radar and were the people that, which is why they talked to me. They were the people that nobody paid attention to who were in the food chain, who saw everything and knew everything, but, you know, they were just not considered the, uh, the important people in a film. So those people talk like crazy. And I think that was something that had been off limits in this time. There were no reporters that wrote that, uh, when I started. Everything was very controlled and very corporate and very careful. There were no test screening reports.
1: Nobody wrote about test screenings. It was verboten. When Drew mentioned sharing reviews of test screenings, he was referring to the other feature that made Ain't it Cool News stand out from its contemporaries. For you see, in the early gold rush days of the internet, one of the things that really set Ain't it Cool News on a higher trajectory from other sites was Harry's willingness to run reviews from random people who attended test screenings. What are test screenings? They're basically a process wherein filmmakers and studios create a rough cut of a film after wrapping principal photography, what is known as basically an assembly cut, and then secretly playing that cut in front of an audience. When used in their proper contexts, these test screenings are a great way for directors and producers to know which part of their movies do and do not work for an audience. But when movie studios and their marketing departments get involved, these test screenings take on a different purpose and are frequently exploited as a way to wrest creative control from filmmakers. When Drew McQueenie first moved to Los Angeles after finishing college, he got a job at a movie theater that frequently hosted these test screenings. Test screenings as a
4: process, I think for a filmmaker, they're invaluable. Filmmakers should always have the ability to test their films. They should be able to do it any way they want. They should be able to do it without anybody intruding on the process. The problem is the studios don't treat them the same way and they really didn't at that point the studios basically use test screenings to decide how much power to take away from the filmmaker to decide how to market the movies and uh, how to change the films and
1: frequently without the filmmakers input these test screening reviews were an insanely popular feature among readers myself included because they were the online community's first glimpse of movies that would not be released for several months and in some cases more than a year. They were our chance to have some idea as to whether or not the hype being generated by marketing departments at studios was justified. But for people like Chris Pula, who was head of marketing at New Line Cinemas, Warner Brothers, and Disney, i.e. the person who was trying to generate that hype, these test screening reviews were a bane to his existence.
6: You know, it's just, ultimately what Harry did was just not fair. Test screenings are unfortunately or for, well, fortunately, part of that process. And Harry interrupted that process. As much as I admire them, I'm not certain they did anyone a service.
1: It would be easy in the telling of the story to draw simple, moral lines. To talk about Drew McQueenie and Harry Knowles as if they were online mavericks who rode digital horses into town to take on studio executives who are the bad guys. Especially people like Chris Pula, who worked in marketing to frequently sell us movies that the studios knew were not any good. I believed as much when I was a teenager and read articles on Ain't It Cool News that would trash Chris Pula by name. But since then, I've also worked in marketing, for filmmaking specifically, so I can understand Chris's perspective on this as well. Beyond that, if we give Chris Pula credit for nothing else, he's the person who basically ensured the success of M. Night Shyamalan's 1999 supernatural thriller The Sixth Sense by coining the marketing tagline, I see dead people. I see dead people. So while I most certainly do not support the way that studios would frequently hurt or damage the creative process of filmmakers, film is a collaborative medium. It takes all kinds of people to make a film successful, including marketing executives like Chris Pula. Also, to Chris's credit, when I randomly called him out of the blue to ask for this interview, he was busy walking down the street to deliver food to an elderly neighbor who lived near his house. In other words, there are shades of gray. Besides that, the writers for Anit Cool News had a much bigger fish to fry, a man by the name of Joe Farrell. In 1981, Farrell founded the National Research Group, or NRG, the company that was contracted by the majority of studios in Hollywood to conduct their test screenings. We will talk more about Joe Farrell in our next episode, but for now I'm going to say this. While working at a theater that hosted many of the test screenings in L.A., Drew McQueenie claims he once witnessed the director walk out of a test screening. Pleased with the audience response, the director instructed Joe Farrell to not hand out scorecards to the audience. The scorecards Drew was talking about are these pieces of paper that Joe Farrell would have the audience fill out, which were frequently a tool studios would use to strip directors of creative control. Then after the director left the building, Drew says that Joe Farrell secretly handed out the scorecards anyway, without the director's knowledge or consent. And I realized at that point, this isn't for filmmakers.
4: I don't like anything about this process. I hate what they do to filmmakers, and I've watched filmmakers really struggle because they got railroaded by this guy. So when I realized that Ain't It Cool could go to a test screening, run a review, write about the process that was ongoing, and voice our opinion in a place where Joe Farrell couldn't filter it, where he couldn't get in between us and the filmmaker, where we could speak directly to the filmmaker on the site, that was power. And I realized it was power when he started talking about us in the press. As soon as he and Warner Brothers said, Ain't It Cool News shouldn't exist and they shouldn't be able to talk about this, it was over. We won because you validated us. You made it valid. You made it a thing.
1: The reason Warner Brothers said Ain't It Cool News should not exist and where the website's practice of running reviews of test screenings came to a head was over the 1997 Joel Schumacher film Batman and Robin. We didn't exist until Warner Brothers said
4: Batman and Robin was hurt by Ain't It Cool News. Oh, really? That's a hell of a lot of power to hand somebody,
1: isn't it? schumacher took over the batman movie franchise from director tim burton after his second film batman returns failed to meet box office expectations intended as a tribute of sorts to silent german-era expressionist films like the cabinet of dr caligari batman returns was much darker than burton's original batman film and so both warner brothers and schumacher believed the best way to course correct was to make the third film batman forever brighter and campier in short they wanted to make something that was more of an homage to the 1960s Batman TV series starring Adam West.
3: Holy-rested metal, Batman! Huh? The ground, it's all metal, it's full of holes,
1: you know? Holy! Oh. The brighter take on the cape Crusader was a hit, and when Batman Forever was released in the summer of 1995, it had the highest-grossing opening weekend of all time. So when they moved forward with a fourth Batman film, titled Batman and Robin, they decided to double down on schumacher's light-hearted take on the character schumacher cast george clooney to replace val kilmer as batman and in an interview that ran in premiere magazine in june 1995 the director tried to justify this even brighter take on the material saying
7: i decided to move away from the dark my parents are dead narcissistic batman i mean george clooney is 35, and if any of us had a 35-year-old friend who was just sitting around, still brooding about their parents' death 30 years earlier, we would say, can you please get on with your life?
1: But when the full extent of Schumacher's vision was revealed during our premiere of the film's first trailer on Entertainment Tonight, as well as a reveal of the Batman and Robin action figures at a Target store, Harry Knowles went on the warpath. The webmaster started by running two anonymous reviews from people who attended a test screening in San Diego in April of 1997, months before the film was released. Harry was quick to note that the movie had unfinished effects and a temporary film score, but didn't hold back in terms of sharing the reviewer's problem with the film.
5: So how did it go? Sala,
1: Spy 1, said, quote, First off,
5: the movie is a lemon. End quote. And my other spy, Fun Boy, Spy 2, said, quote, It was terrible, and I love
1: Batman. End quote. Not very promising words. In the countdown to the US theatrical release of Batman and Robin, Harry Knowles wrote no less than 10 articles and columns devoted to tearing the film down. Two of his articles featured rumors that the film was getting extensive last-minute reshoots, which Harry cited to a report from the Montreal Gazette. And even though Harry got this story from a Canadian newspaper, when Joel Schumacher read the story on Ain't It Cool News, he flew into damage control. Addressing Harry's report in an Entertainment Weekly article dated June 6, 1997, Schumacher denied that there were any last-minute reshoots on the film, which was slated to be released less than a month later. He also insisted that audiences loved the film during its test screenings, a claim that seems highly dubious in retrospect. And in a clear reference to Ain't it Cool News, Schumacher blamed the negative buzz surrounding Batman and Robin on what he describes as, quote, an unpoliced internet, end quote. He then went on to add,
7: There's a small cult that would like the movies to be nihilistic and brooding, but Batman is for everyone from three to three hundred. It's my job to find the proper comic book tone.
1: According to Eric Vespi, who wrote for Ain't It Cool News for nearly two decades under the pseudonym Quint, Schumacher's response helped expose the site to a much larger audience.
9: The reason Ain't It Cool had any power was because Joel Schumacher gave it to us. Um, We were just nerds in in Austin. By him doing that, he then gave the power to this dude who was just selling movie posters to keep keep his rent. You know, it's like he it wasn't this one person had the power to destroy a film. And by doing that, that's what made Hollywood afraid of of the uh, of
1: internet sites, like, any cool? Harry hit back at Schumacher's Entertainment Weekly response, making it clear in an article that his source for his news stories about reshoots came from a traditional newspaper. He devotes hundreds of words to tearing into Schumacher, only to then conclude the article with what can only be described as a rallying cry for the legion of Batman fans and movie geeks on the internet. I am not the leader of these people, but I do get about
5: 7,000 pairs of eyes a day. I get about 500 to as high as 1500 pieces of email a day. I am very much in touch with at least that many eyes that could at least afford a computer and find the time to log
1: on every single day. We are the film geeks. And while Harry admits that only 7,000 people from around the world viewed his site daily, when Joel Schumacher addressed Harry and his site indirectly, he may have inadvertently prioritized these 7,000 people over the millions of people he needed to buy movie tickets, many of whom were still not on the internet at that time. And by prioritizing this vocal, angry digital mob, who were a vast minority, Schumacher and by proxy Warner Brothers made them Legion. What happened next was a straight up beatdown. After the completed version of Batman and Robin was locked and ready for theaters, Warner Brothers hosted critics and preview screenings around the country. And sensing blood in the water, this community of movie geeks initiated a feeding frenzy, which Harry Knowles was more than happy to host on his webpage. In a post that ran just days before the release of Batman and Robin, Harry featured blurbs from more than 10 different wannabe film critics who were more than happy to send Joel Schumacher and Batman and Robin through the blender. Here are excerpts from those reviews. This movie sucks.
7: I would not wish it upon my enemies. I am dumbfounded and insulted that somebody got paid to make this movie.
6: Bane was horrible, and so was every scene with Poison Ivy.
7: I would rather sit through a
2: 24-hour Hudson Hawk marathon while chewing broken glass than see this film again. So there it is. I cannot recommend this movie to anyone. But conversely, I cannot deny that people should go and experience for themselves how truly bad it is.
7: Wow, what an incredible piece of shit.
8: In the middle of the movie, I shouted out, Death to Schumacher. It was met by applause from the audience.
1: That last blurb about the death decree brought on Joel Schumacher for his many perceived sins against Batman and nerd culture came from none other than Joe Hollenbeck, Harry's frequent contributor and so-called spy, who was in attendance during an L.A. screening. I I was so angered.
8: By what I was seeing, how horrible it was, you know. Whether it was the the nipples on the on, on the uh, on on the uh, bat suits or the the stilted acting, the, the the garish costume design and art direction, it just was something that was just it just angered me. It was it was such a 180 from the original, you know, Tim Burton movies that. Uh, Just this voice just came out of me and and I just screamed out, you know, like some kind of crazy revolutionary uh, death to Schumacher. And uh, the audience went apeshit, absolute apeshit, which was funny because a lot of the audience was, you know, filled with industry folks and critics, too.
1: Obviously, Joe Hollenbeck's death threat was made during a more innocent time of the Internet, a time before people made death threats, only to then make good on those threats in real life. A time before people on the internet made threats to overthrow the U.S. government, only to then show up at our nation's capital and try to murder our elected officials, according to Ain't it Cool News writer Jeremy Smith. If Joe Hollenbeck had made these threats today, things probably would have gone much differently.
2: No one took the internet seriously; otherwise, he would have had a knock at his door.
1: Uh, and you know, he—I mean, you now the world we live in now—I don't even know. At no point on Ain't it Cool News was this threat made by what ostensibly seems like a straight white male. To kill a filmmaker who was both Jewish and, if not publicly out of the closet as a gay man, was most certainly believed to be a gay man, perceived to be anything more than a joke. A conversational spillover from the digital reservoir of the toxic Usenet net conversation. According to Whitney Phillips, a professor of communication at Syracuse University and the author of the book, This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture, the reason threats and harassments like this were tolerated or never taken seriously on the Internet, specifically during the early days, is because the people who were in charge of the decision-making for most websites and online platforms were monolithically white and male.
8: When companies are not considering what to do when there's harassment or what to do when there's threats of violence or what to do when all these terrible things happen, what that tells me is that a very certain kind of person is in charge of the decision making. Because if multiple diverse people were having that conversation, if black folks and women and queer folks were, were, were at the table, then it would be much more likely that, that harassment would have already been a discussion, that there would have been a plan for it. you know. And the fact that so many of these platforms, um, publishers, whatever social media companies, they didn't worry about that early on. And so, then, abuse and harassment was allowed to flourish.
1: By the time Harry Knowles actually reviewed Batman & Robin, quite negatively, I might add, he really didn't even need to say anything. The damage had already been done. When Warner Brothers finally released Batman & Robin in the United States on June 20th, 1997, it grossed $42 million on its opening weekend, $10 million less than Batman Forever Made over the same period, and for its final totals, Batman and Robin would net $238 million worldwide, nearly $100 million less than its predecessor, despite having a much larger budget. What's strange about this is that each year, major film studios release hundreds of movies that would be massive successes if they made this much money. But for Batman, the diminishing returns from the previous film were not seen as attrition so much as a death spiral. The whole debacle was a franchise killer, and according to many people, Harry Knowles and Ain't it Cool News were holding the murder weapon. At the time this all went down, Chris Pula, who was working as head of marketing at Warner brothers, was incensed by Harry Knowles and his website's ability to completely derail his marketing efforts, especially when it came from dropping reviews from test screenings. But when I spoke to Chris Pula almost 25 years after the release of Batman and Robin, it would seem that he now gives Harry Knowles less credit for the movie's failures.
6: I don't think Harry bought down any movies. The movies bought down themselves. He just expedited them. I mean, that you can't bring down a good movie. Listen, we all knew when we had a bad movie. If a movie goes from a performance, a huge performance on Friday to a giant drop on Saturday and Sunday, you got a turd on your hands.
1: Hollywood executives might have hated and in some cases even feared Harry because of the negative buzz his test screening reviews created for the bad movies that were on their slate. But when Harry Knowles and Annick It Cool News accomplished the opposite and reversed the tide of negative buzz surrounding a film that legitimate press were hoping to brand as a potential disaster, the feelings about him became conflicted. That movie? That movie? James Cameron's Titanic. After all the awards and hundreds of millions of dollars that film earned, it's easy to forget that there was a time when entertainment journalists believed it was a sure thing that that movie would be a massive bomb. James Cameron's Titanic ran way over budget and over schedule, and the traditional entertainment press had a feeding frenzy of their own, running stories about the onset drama that occurred during the grueling film shoot. They wanted this to be the next Waterworld or Heaven's Gate, two films which also ran massively over budget and behind schedule. Both films are huge flops at the box office, but the stories from both films of the challenges and failures that took place behind the scenes created a financial ecosystem for TV and print outlets who exploited these bad news stories to make compelling headlines. And there was certainly bad news coming from the set of Titanic, where it was alleged the film cost a million dollars per minute and that Cameron reportedly yelled at the crew so often and so loudly that one of them allegedly poisoned his soup by lacing it with PCP. When Titanic was rescheduled from its initial release date during the more lucrative summer movie season to the winter, the press sharpened their hatchets. Meanwhile, in Austin, Texas, Harry got a phone call tipping him off that Titanic was going to be test-screened far from where his frequent spies could see it in Los Angeles. This phone call led Harry to discover that the Mall of America in Minnesota would be hosting a test screening of great expectations. And while Fox was in fact producing an adaptation of the Charles Dickens classic of the same name starring Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow, Harry suspected this might have been a smokescreen as well as a not-too-subliminal play on words. As in, here is a movie that costs a shit-ton of money to make, and we have great expectations that it must be profitable. Harry dispatched his spies and managed to score 18 reviews in his email box. He ran three of them, and unlike Batman and Robin... The word was... Good! During the time when most of the Hollywood press seemed almost enamored by the idea that Titanic would be this massive box office failure... Ain't It Cool News ran one of the earliest positive-leaning stories about this supposedly troubled production. And as much as running test screening reviews for Batman and Robin was not solely responsible for his failure, no one would argue that Harry Knowles or his website were solely responsible for the massive success of Titanic, which went on to gross more than $2 billion. But in both instances, this website helped shift the narrative. And love Harry Knowles or hate him, and let's be honest, during the late 90s, most Hollywood executives hated Harry Knowles, they realized that this website's ability to turn the tide and shift the narrative was something worthwhile to try and exploit. We'll talk more about that in the next episode of this program. But for now, I want to shift gears and focus again on Harry Knowles' hometown of Austin, Texas. By this point in Harry's career as a disruptor of the entertainment industry, he had helped one film lose millions of dollars while also helping another film make billions of dollars and after appearing in articles that ran in national publications like New York Times Magazine, Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, and Entertainment Weekly, one would assume that Knowles would be something of a local celebrity in the city he called home. This was not the case, however, according to longtime Austin resident and former Ain't it Cool News contributor C. Robert Cargill. Before Cargill ever wrote Word One for Ain't it Cool News under his pen name Massaworm, he says the first time he met Harry in person, he had no idea who this large, redheaded man was working as a waiter at the Austin home cooking restaurant called Threadgill's a spot renowned for being the first place where Janis Joplin performed for an audience Cargill first encountered Harry as one of his frequent customers who ate at Threadgill's on a regular basis.
0: Harry and his dad would come in and eat there once a week and nobody knew who they were. the staff called them the hillbillies Um, and they would come in and order a five vegetable plate and they'd always want a refill on their five vegetable plate And um, uh, and uh, and so I waited on him a couple of times. But the first time I I remember being someone's like, oh, those are the hillbillies. Uh, They're not big tippers, uh, but there's what they want. That's all you need to do. And just keep refilling their hibiscus tea or they'll complain. And that's how I met Harry the first time.
1: Cargill adds that it wasn't until he attended a film screening promoted by It Cool News a short while later that he realized who Harry was.
0: And it was only then that I was like, "Oh, oh, he's the he's one of the hillbillies. Oh, nobody there knows who this guy is. That's crazy."
1: In order to transcend the status of Hollywood disruptor slash pariah to local celebrity in a place like Austin, Texas, where cool guitar slingers typically ruled the scene, Harry Knowles would need the endorsement of one of the most rock star of rock star directors who ever lived. <laughs> and that director, of course is Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino loved Austin, Texas. He fell in love with the city during a special premiere screening of the 1995 vampire thriller From Dusk Till Dawn, which he wrote and co-starred in for director and beloved Austin resident Robert
6: Rodriguez. What, were they psychos? They look like psychos? Is that what they look like? They were vampires. Psychos do not explode when sunlight hits them. I don't
1: give a fuck how crazy they are. Realizing the city was a movie watcher's paradise, Quentin Tarantino returned to Austin in 1997 to host his very first Quentin Tarantino Film Fest or QT Fest, a fundraiser for the Austin Film Society. The event was a 10-day mystery movie marathon, with each day featuring a different theme uniting the films that he would play from his personal collection of 16 and 35mm film prints. Harry attended every installment of this 10-day festival in order to review each of the 25 films that Quentin played. Films like White Lightning with Burt Reynolds.
3: <laughs> he hits the screen like a bolt of white lightning. The Swinging Cheerleaders. Take eight attractive young college co Put them on the cheerleader squad and you have The Swinging Cheerleaders.
1: And The House on Sorority Row. No one would ever forget the girls. <laughs> in The House on Sorority Row. It was right before the third night of QT Fest, that Harry received a startling message. It was from an usher who said that Quentin Tarantino would like to have a word with him. Harry was worried he might be in trouble because of something he wrote, but since he walked around with the help of crutches at the time and couldn't run away, he complied. I hobbled over to him and
5: he told me that he had specifically discouraged the press from attending, but at the same time, he never had anyone cover something the way I was. I didn't focus on whether he was drinking or not. I wasn't snide or snotty about him being the Wonder Boy. I just reported on the films and tried to convey his enthusiasm for them. And he encouraged me to keep it up and told me he was looking forward to the next installment.
1: Quentin Tarantino is infamous for the way he avoids using computers. But according to Ain't It Cool News writer Eric Fespe, the Pulp Fiction director had a peculiar way of keeping up with the activity on Harry's website over the years.
9: Um, yeah, Quentin was uh, a real early adapter, which is funny because he is the most technologically like non-savvy of any filmmaker, right? You know, like, I, But the way he, I had heard what would happen is because he didn't use a computer and I think he still might not use a computer. But what I'd heard is he'd have his assistant, Julie, print out Ain't It Cool News every day. And he would even print out the talkbacks on Ain't It Cool and give it to him so he could read through the,
1: the stuff. On the last day of the festival... Quentin even asked Harry to show up early so that the two of them could pose for pictures. That is where he pronounced Harry as the Wolf Blitzer of the internet, referencing a perhaps now forgotten fact that before he was head news anchor on CNN, Wolf Blitzer was a field reporter who made a name for himself when he covered the first US war in Iraq by risking his life and standing way too close to gunfire. The so-called Wolf Blitzer of the internet was a ringing endorsement that Harry would place on his website for years. But more important than that, having Quentin publicly vouch for him, made Harry something he had never been before to the people in his hometown. Cool. And just like that, Harry went from being a nobody, a semi-paralyzed man that some people in Austin, Texas referred to as a random hillbilly, to a hometown hero, as well as one of the internet's first celebrities, a man who was despised by the power circles of Hollywood, who is now well on his way to being courted, if not embraced by them. Things were looking up for Harry. Harry. But just as both Austin, Texas, and at least parts of Hollywood were ready to celebrate the boy from the internet who made good, Harry would admit to something in writing that everyone who read the site would completely overlook, myself included. In 1998, Harry Knowles wrote a positive review of Evil Dead director Sam Raimi's brilliant, low-budget thriller, A Simple Plan. In that review, Harry did what he frequently did at the time, and shared a personal story. Harry starts his review by praising the film, before singling out a great performance by Billy Bob Thornton, who plays a conventionally unattractive loser named Jacob, who was teased because of his appearances by girls in his high school. Here's a clip from the film.
8: Why don't you think somebody will marry me if I'm rich?
1: (laughs) You don't need
5: money for that. Hank...
6: Hey, come on, what about, uh... What was her name? Carrie Richards? She liked you even though you were a broke dick. Well, her, yeah, that was, a, that was a whole different
8: deal. That was her, her, um, her friends, they pitched in a hundred bucks altogether and, and bet her that she wouldn't go study with me for a month.
1: Finding kinship with Billy Bob Thornton's story about being tormented by the girls in his high school, Harry talks about how he was fat for most of his conscious life and how when he was a kid, in terms of meeting girls while he attended school, his choices always felt limited. Harry then goes on to say,
5: When I entered junior high, there was a new level of torment. In the Glee Squad, there was a group of goddesses. Babes that I thought about well before the concept of masturbation even existed. Later, Harry adds, They'd walk around in their purple pleated Glee Squad skirts with their purple lead shielding panties, and they ruled the school. After about two weeks, they chose me to be their prey. It started with them sitting at my table during lunch I was painfully shy at this time I had the confidence of a lolly mollusk but with them close I could get a better look at them and in my dense cranial activity I pondered that perhaps they liked me then they started doing things like feeling my thigh slapping my ass hugging me kissing a cheek on my face then they'd run off laughing with their friends and money would exchange That's when it hit me. I was a circus freak. The fat man on display for a 10 cent ticket. Then I went home and I thought long and hard about how to handle the situation. And I came to the conclusion that I would simply slap their asses, squeeze their tits, and show them what it's like. They left me alone after that. I stood up to their games and fired back. After that, there was a certain level of freedom in me. Billy Bob never stood up.
1: To be clear, if all of Harry's story is true, it was wrong of the girls in his high school to bully him. At the same time, it was at least equally wrong for Harry to respond to this bullying by groping these women and basically committing sexual assault. These are accusations that would later be charged against Harry Knowles by multiple women in the Austin film scene in 2017. Accusations that Harry Knowles would deny. I've talked to many people who worked in and around Ain't It Cool News during the process of researching this story. None of them remember this review. And if I'm being honest, none of the readers, myself included, had a problem with it either. Maybe a lot of people simply didn't notice. After all, while a great movie, a simple plan failed to make a true dent in cinema culture. Maybe we were all just brainwashed, along with the rest of the country, by the sexism that was baked into the way we looked at the world. At the same time, Harry thought it wise to share this personal story on his website. US President Bill Clinton had just admitted to engaging in sexual acts with a 22-year-old intern who worked for him at the White House. This happened of course after Matt Drudge, Harry Knoll's former boss, broke the story on his website, The Drudge Report. And yes, Bill Clinton was impeached for having lied about this indiscretion under oath. But almost no one seemed upset that he had abused his power and authority over an intern who was less than half his age. Maybe we were all just excited by the new and amazing possibilities of the internet to affect the real world, in this case, the motion picture industry, that no one, not one single person, really batted an eye or said, what's up with that, Harry? Instead, we just kept clicking. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, titled There Will Be Nerds, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia, and production assistance by Reese Allen. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles, and my friend Jay Floyd as the voice of Joel Schumacher. Music credits include original theme music and other songs by Chester Enders Biguazda. There are also original songs by Great Freak and Exopulse. The song you're listening to right now is at the movies on Quaaludes by The Flaming Lips from their fantastic new album, American Head. This episode also features archival audio and music clips from a variety of films and TV series. If I could recommend only one film from this list, it would have to be White Lightning with Burt Reynolds, followed closely by A Simple Plan, the reason being is that both are great films, but I'm a huge fan of old school car chases. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W instead of an A. Pod as in podcast.com. And there you can read show notes, learn more about the cast and crew, ask a question, and even leave a message that can be played on the air. For our next chapter in this story, titled Almost Famous We will look at what happens to this tiny website From Austin, Texas When Hollywood decides that the best way To deal with its webmaster Is to try and seduce him We'll also find out how a high school kid Got a gig working for Harry Knowles And we'll learn more about the epic war Between Drew McQueenie And the National Research Group The company that controlled much of Hollywood By running test screenings All of this and more So join us then when we dial up Log on And download files
8: done. Goodbye.